last night when Sally was talking about the Four Noble Truths and mentioned that the fourth truth, the Eightfold Path, is so brilliant because it's really about our whole life, not uh, just about meditation. So I'm not talking about the Eightfold Path tonight. We're saving that for Pascal, unless he changes his mind. But I do want to take like a little just a little turn and not talk specifically about meditation tonight, but talk about, to remind us that as far as I can tell, we can tell, everything the Buddha taught was in the service of transforming our consciousness, transforming the habits of our mind from unwholesome to wholesome, that basically everything he taught was part of our path of awakening. And of course, we're in a meditation retreat, and that's mostly what we're looking at, for sure. But I just want to remind us that other aspects of his teaching, such as dana or generosity and sila or non-harming virtuous conduct, aren't like nice things to do, you know, just to kind of get yourself ready for meditation, you know, or a byproduct or a should. But mostly tonight I want to talk about generosity. But uh, in the way of really seeing, really opening in our own experience to, to learn to see and deeply trust that the practice of generosity in all the different forms is actually a deep practice of liberation. Not, uh, not just the, the, the preparatory, the waiting room, you know. And a little bit sometimes, not, not everywhere, but sometimes in uh, some of the Buddhist countries, because in, in Buddhism, the Buddha always did start by talking about generosity and then talking about um, virtuous conduct and then talking about mental cultivation, kind of in that order. And sometimes, not everyone, but in some places in Buddhist countries, the um, practice of dana or generosity, supporting nunneries and monasteries, supporting each other, it's not only just about nuns and monks, comes to be, it's a, a deeply felt practice, but sometimes it's still just in the field of merit. I'm doing this because I can't meditate, and if I'm generous, I'll have a better life next time around. So there's an element of that in the teachings. But when I want to talk about generosity as a practice tonight, to really see how in a moment where we experience a generous heart-mind, that's a moment of real purity of consciousness. It liberates us from greed, from possessiveness. It frees the heart and mind from ill will in a moment of generosity. And of course, obviously, it moves past the false sense separation of self, that kind of holding of possessiveness, of clinging, of trying to protect. So the action of the generous action, which can be of thought, of word, of deed. It's not just about giving things or money. It's about any kind of generous sharing and also receiving because there's no giving without receiving, open-hearted receiving. It completes the circle. So, <clears throat> so the, the act, the open-hearted act of generosity, even just in thought, that's an act. It highlights the connectedness, the non-separation, 
So instead of coming from this kind of fear and protectiveness and possessiveness and I-ness, it's a movement in contradiction to that. When we're really present with it, when it's really being practiced as an awakening practice. And this probably isn't news to anybody. We all know in all of our different cultures, generosity is a very... um, appreciated and deeply taught um, practice in whatever religious tradition I'm aware of, and just in, in um, general life too. It doesn't even have to be a spiritual tradition. The, the difference I want to, what I've really been learning in the last few years, mostly from my time in Thailand and my time in Burma, I have to say, maybe being in a different culture from this culture, which I have to say people are really, really generous in this culture, I'm not saying we're not at all, but somehow being in a different culture and a uh, essentially Buddhist culture, and in both places in Thailand and Burma, spending most most of my time in nunneries or monasteries, because I mean that's why I'm going there or meditation centers. But of course, traveling a lot too. Not only being in meditation centers with nuns and monks, where I've experienced both, as I say, just that kind of very deep generosity, but in the same way um, superficial in terms of for merit, which is everywhere, but also, and over and over and over so often, a quality of spontaneous, heartfelt, natural generosity that is so joyous that it has a quality of contagion, a quality that I never really learned from how I grew up, um, or even from all the, the generosity I experience here and in my life a lot. But the quality of um, real joy that comes from this open-hearted um, generosity, I found has a, a quality of uh, really seeing, really feeling how contagious that is, and how the feeling how the actual practice of generosity, it's not, it's not a practice, the practice doesn't even sound right, but it kind of becomes, um, not just second nature, but it becomes really natural to us where one wants to be generous because it's such a source of immediate happiness. And that was kind of like a secret teaching, you know, that I hadn't really learned. Yeah, generosity is good. We feel better when we're generous and we should be generous. And especially we should be generous to those less fortunate, kind of, you know, how I... So there's, a, just, there's room for other moods to come in there. And uh, in Burma, and, and I've been going there like the last 10 years, and every time I go, there's just so many big and small, spontaneous um, movements of generosity that it blows me away. And at first when you go, you think, well, if it's towards oneself, one of course thinks, oh no, I can't accept that. I'm so much better off than you, you know. And then you feel how, how churlish that is, how that completely stops the circle of interconnectedness. You know, and that's all about me. Oh no, I can't take your generosity. But when one really, for example, in the last few years when I've been going with a few friends, and many of you here know, we 
people offer us um, dana, money that we take, and as the vehicle for all the Dhamma friends here, we share with different nunneries, with um, made some funds for kids to go to school who can't afford to go to school, or rebuild some houses, or whatever comes up. And so we've been in this one meditation center where we've been staying. There's many, many poor nunneries all around it, every year more. And we go back, uh, we, we, we can't give to all of them, but the certain ones that we've connected with, that we give and other people may offer, Donna, and we go back the next year and see how it's been used, and it's usually been used wonderfully, and we can offer more. And, but any time we even just show up, we don't, we're not even offered, we just come to say hello, immediately there's a lunch invitation. So about, there's four, five, six of us, depending. And as I said, my friend Aryanyani and her friend Mimi, Mimi is Burmese, Arya speaks Burmese, so there's a lot more um, communication. So there's always a lunch invitation. And the first years, we were like, no, you know, they'll make a lunch for us that's ten times better than any meal they ever have. And it's embarrassing because you go and sit and eat and they watch you eat. They're not eating. They're not eating. That's how it always is. In meditation centers, you know, every meal, you see the meal Donna here. That's the thing coming from Asia. In every meditation center all over the country, the meals are offered every day by different people. So it might be if I'm staying in a meditation center, one day I'll offer the meals. And if it's a big one like Shui Yu Min, it last year was 400 or $500 a day. It's not nothing. And you see so many Burmese people come. They sign up months ahead to offer the meal, Donna. And they'll come on their day with their families and all dressed up, and they watch you eat and take photos and stuff. So that, that takes some getting used to for us, right? So... But you're just a yogi, so you just eat, you don't interact or anything. So we know it's like that. So when the nuns invite us, we'll go to their nunneries, which are really poor, and sit at the table on the floor, and they'll have like a table groaning with 25, I'm not exaggerating, different kinds of curries. Then they'll have another table that's groaning with fruits and little desserts. And they don't eat like that ever, ever. And when we're done, whatever we've done eating, they'll take, and they may take a few days. There's six of us, 25 of them, right? They may take a few days to eat off of the leftovers of what we didn't eat. So there's that disparity. And if we say no, it's so, you know, just cuts the cycle. Or if we go and feel embarrassed, you know, they're so happy, they're so thrilled, they love to be able to offer. So can we go and be so happy to receive? And when both sides are like that, it's a beautiful teaching. It's a beautiful um, opening of the heart and mind. It makes one want to be more generous, not as it should. First it's like that, well, they were good to us, so we should give them more money. But it really isn't like that at all. What happens is you just, wow, it's so beautiful, and you just want to give. It may not be to them. It may be you walk out, and someone else comes across your path, and the heart and mind is in this open, receptive space. And if there's something to be offered, you just offer it. It's really contagious, and it starts to be not a practice, but a way of being. It is particularly um, highlighted in uh, the monastic uh, tradition within Buddhism, for sure. The Buddha set up the monastic monks and nuns um, sasana sangha during his time so that generosity was at the center of it. 
was at the core of it. The whole thing depends on generosity. This is, this is from the Buddha. He says, monks, he's talking to his monks, Brahmins and householders are very helpful to you. They provide you with the requisites of robes, alms, food, lodgings, and medicines in times of sickness. And just if, if you don't know, those are the only four things a monk is allowed to um, accept, that that's what they're offered. Um, robes, alms, food, lodgings, and medicine. And they can, can't keep food overnight, so it's just the food for that one day. So still, in Buddhist countries, the monks go out every morning at dawn on this barefoot alms round with their bowls, not that big, with their <laughs> bowls and get food. Now, in many places, all they get is a little bit of rice because the places are really poor. And so then often the monastery or the meditation center will actually cook for the monks and nuns. But they'll use the rice that's donated. But then that food that's cooked is also offered by other people. But they keep the alms round up because it's, and I'll, and I'll tell a story about it in a minute, it's an opportunity for generosity for the people that come out and offer rice. And to stop doing that is actually an act of selfishness, of taking away that opportunity for Donna. It's not so much the way we think, but that's the common phrase. Oh, this is an opportunity for generosity. Sometimes loudspeakers will be going through a village. An opportunity for generosity, you know, in in my Western mind, I hear, yeah, right. You know, someone's out there trolling for money. But it's really felt as an opportunity for generosity. Buddha again. And you monks are very helpful to Brahmins and householders as you teach them the Dhamma that is good in the beginning, the middle, and the end, with the correct meaning and wording. And you proclaim the spiritual life in its fulfillment and purity. Thus, monks, nuns, this spiritual life is lived with mutual support for the purpose of crossing the flood and making a complete end of suffering. And so the Buddha really set it up that way, that monks and nuns couldn't just withdraw and be separate from lay people, that they're linked together through generosity, through support of one another. Lay men and women and ordained women and men. Those are like the four types of people that are important in the Sangha. And their link is generosity. Generosity with things, generosity with time, generosity with the Dhamma. So this is at the heart. So, of course, um, it shows up a lot in, well, in Burma or in Thailand, in the nunneries, in the monasteries. But it really seems to have become quite intrinsic in the culture. And so, every, so far, every year when I go, I know this now. It's not like magic. You go, people are weird. People have their stuff. It's not like you know, some kind of magical, wonderful culture, as you well know from reading the news. Um, and it's just kind of normal for a while. But after, I don't know, a few days, a few weeks, each time we keep running into some little unexpected gesture of such a deep quality of generosity and metta that it blows us away. We said one of my friends, Mario, she calls it a, a, a piti opportunity. You know, or something will just be so touching at the depths of someone's generosity that we just 
we just come to tears about it. And as this is, and then that is touching us, and that's the point I want to make. It's like, oh, these people are so wonderful. These people over there are so wonderful. I couldn't be like that. But what happens with the wholesomeness in our heart and mind when it's generated? Have you noticed how wholesome feeds wholesome in your own self? Say yes, you've noticed that. At least you've noticed two moments of it, right? <laughs> unwholesome can also feed unwholesome. Both are lawful. <laughs> wholesome feeds wholesome. And we catch it from each other because it wakes up the natural goodness, the natural wholesomeness in the mind that isn't colored by confusion. So just to tell you a couple of little, uh, again, stories to give you this sense of the, the spirit of, of joy in the giving and receiving. Um, okay, so this is uh, a few years ago when there was a big cyclone uh, in the lower delta region southwest of Yangon, and really thousands and thousands of people died, and, and their, the farms were destroyed. It was a huge devastation. And um, the government, of course, did nothing. And many Burmese people really went and tried to help. Just naturally, any Burmese person who had anything tried to load up their car or their boat and go down there, even though the government was stopping them. So a, f- a couple years later, some of us were with this Sayada um, Windika at uh, the meditation center where I've been staying. And he organized like a, just a dana of food. We bought a, we, from the money people had donated, bought a lot of rice and oil and onions and kind of beans and kind of staples. And he's an organizer. He organized these big boats that we took all this food down um, the river to the, some, a few little villages in the delta and very formally offered the food. And the, the villages were quite poor, really happy to receive. It's all done very formally and with a, with a kind of a ceremony, a kind of a, an honoring of both the giving and the receiving. It's not like, well, here you are. Oh, here we'll take it. We're ashamed. It's a a real kind of honoring. And then the villagers all came, like in a row, with whatever beautiful plants they had, because it was a very um, um, rich area for growing things. And they offered all these potted plants to the Sayadaw to bring back in the boat to plant at the monastery. I mean, of course, you don't think about how you're going to get all these plants in the boat and schlep them up there, and that's what we would want. Well, that's too much trouble. Thanks a lot. You keep them, right? (laughs) But you don't do that. You don't do that. You accept it with great joy, and then you go back and go, what are we going to do with all these plants? You put them in the boat, even though there's no room for you, and you schlep them up there and you plant them. There's a sense of really honoring the whole cycle and... uh, there's something really beautiful in that that brings much more of a depth to the generosity and the receiving on both sides. That same year, then right at this meditation center, right in the edge of Yangon, the villages around it were also affected by the cyclone and didn't have much food that year. So we and the Saida organized what's called a rice dana, where every, every village, they, is, every house in every village is registered. So people can't live somewhere without being registered. So they know every house, they know how many people are in every house. So they organized that everyone would come and we don't feel like big bags of rice. It's huge bags. So they'd get a little chit and come and stand in line. And it would take two of us to, to heave this giant bag of rice up. And these little ladies would go, okay, plop it on their head and go like walking off. Maybe carrying a couple of babies. I mean, I'm not kidding. I have pictures of ladies with two babies and this giant bag of rice on their head. 
So they all took it, went off. It was a nice day, you know, kind of like a picnic day. And then uh, a friend, uh, a guy from Mexico who was a temporary monk there, and he told us the next day, every morning when they go on an alms round, they go on the same route. Because then people know, you know, when the monks are going to come. And the way the alms round works, there's a little, a little monk, like a little um, uh, novice monk, who goes ahead of them ringing a bell. So then the people that want to offer know they're coming, and they come out and stand by the side of the road, and they just stand there, and the monks come silently, and they walk up to them, and then the monk will take the lid off the, the bowl, and they put in the food. And you don't, the monks don't say thank you, and it's not meant to be personal. It's not me giving to you personally. It's supporting the sangha, supporting the sasana, supporting the Buddha's teachings. So the people come out when they hear the bell. And this monk said, basically, you know, every day is more or less the same people. You know which families were going to come out. But this day after the rice dana, when every family had rice, he said so many more people came out to offer rice because now they had a little rice that they could offer. And they didn't have it before. First thing, sure, they kept some to eat, of course, but just that that's the first thing they wanted and were so happy to be able to do that. And it's just, it's just uh, so touching to see that over and over and over. And the sense of, um, of joy in, in dana isn't just with monks and nuns. Another example from this year, we, the, the whole money-changing scene is a little weird there. I mean, it's, um, it's kind of half legal, half not legal, and it's not really through banks, and you have to get money-changers to come out to where you are, especially if you're changing a lot of money. So we were changing a lot, like maybe $25,000, $30,000. And it was organized through a friend, and the money, these young guys kind of come up, not, not really sleazy, but kind of business-like, you know, on an edge. I mean, a step up from drug dealers, but sometimes there's a, a little bit of a sense like that, you know? And they look at every single bill, and if there's like the tiniest dot, they won't take it. And, you know, so you're there a while. It's like a whole process. And then they give you all these piles of money, because Burmese money is like big. So you hand over $2,000, and you get a pile like this of (laughs) things that crumble to dust when you touch them. Anyway, so we were there for a long time changing the money, and it was all just straightforward. And not saying much, and the guys are not unfriendly, but not chatty or anything. And um, I don't even know how. I think somehow just at the end, we or the woman who owns the B&B, the Burmese woman who was kind of the intermediary for us, just said something, oh, great, now you can build a lot of toilets for the nuns or something, which is part of what we were doing. That's all. We didn't, he, he, I mean, he wasn't talking to us. Oh, what are you doing with your money? So there was about $600 that was still kept back for some fee. And the lady from the B&B called us the next a couple days later to say, okay, now I have that. It's been released. And someone here donated another 350 to bring it up to $1,000. So we thought it must be a yogi who stays at that B&B. A lot of meditators, Western meditators, come through there that we know. And we got there, and she said, no, nah, it was the money changer. And that is like... We were all completely blown away. And so when he heard how you guys were spending that money... He just wanted to die. So $350 for a Burmese person, that's a lot of money. And in a very, this is in a very anonymous, not wanting any kind of recognition way. He just, here's $350 to add to that. 
And it's just, that was a kiti moment. You know, it's just, you never know. You think, oh, some sleazy money lender. Not the case. That seed of goodness and generosity is really blooming, you know, in that person's mind. And the first chance they act on it, who knows what other good things he's doing. So it's very, very institutionalized in the culture. I could tell you 10 million more stories, but I'm running out of time, so I won't. But one point that I want to make in terms of the contagion of it, not only to others, but how it functions as uh, deepening us into liberation, that it's not just about the feeling good about it, the joy of it, though that's certainly the case, but it opens the heart and mind to more wholesomeness, to see more clearly. And the Buddha often uh, talked in this way. When he, there's many suttas where he begins with what he calls a graduated teaching, where he sees someone who says, oh, this person could hear the Dhamma, but first he'll give them talk on generosity, talk on sila, to, to, to open the heart and mind, to make the heart and mind more pliable. So I just want to give a couple examples again from this year of how that you can see it happening in people. Um, first, in terms of how the generosity comes in the culture at this place we're staying, the monks, monks, of course, have nothing to give other than teaching Dhamma. But the, the few monks who live at this meditation center, aside from the Sayadaw, so now I've been back there a few years, and, the two, and my two nun friends live there half the year. So we, they know all the monks. And they, they like, the monks are so like wanting to support helping people. And in the past, I've had the impression, not with these guys, that, that monks tend to want to help each other, that they look down on nuns or they don't really think about them so much. But that's just not true. So there's quite a few schools that have been started by nuns because they see there's so many poor kids that can't afford to go to the government school. So there's one that started just nearby where we're living, this nun that we had known Oh, for a few years. And we thought, well, she seems a little bit depressive, actually. Um, and just a nunnery that was nothing special. I mean, fine, and we'd support them some. But they, they weren't particularly bringing up a lot of orphan girls, which a lot of them do, just doing their thing, studying. But she came, I think it was last year, to Aryanyani and said, I really want to start a school, because there was a nun school started about a 10-minute drive away, which the, well, the nun started three years ago. She said, I just have to do something. There's all these poor kids that can't go to school. So they just decide to do it. They build like a lean-to, a roof, and start a school. Somehow they get enough Donna to hire a few teachers. And that's it. They start a school. And she said, okay, well, maybe I can have 100 kids. We went back the next year, 350 kids. We went back this year, 570 kids. And... Uh, so this other nun that came last year said, in the rainy season, and all the little nuns and all the little kids around this area go to that school. She said, it's so far to walk, it's a 45-minute walk. And in the rainy season, which is like pouring monsoon, it's too hard, so they don't go, the little ones. And so she said, I want to start a school around here for the little ones. And so she asked for, I it was about $3,600, which is for us a lot, you know, to give all at once if you we didn't really actually think she could pull it off. But we thought, we said, okay, great, do it. Well, we came back this year. She did it. 
She had, they demolished, the, they had two little buildings, not a lot of land. They demolished the main building the nuns all lived in. They all moved, cramped up into this other little building. They eat there, they sleep there, they do everything there. And with the money we'd given, she built one of these long lean-tos, hired some teachers, and had 150 kids are going there, all the little kids. And then another company, um, some chemical company, came and saw what she was doing, a Burmese company, and so they built another school. And then some other friends of ours came, and they built some toilets, and it's like it attracts more and more. So this year, we saw how she had done that, and then she was talking to, well, talking to Aryanyani, and it's really wonderful to be able sometimes to just sit down and have a conversation because this is where these little gems come out that you don't, you don't get, even from seeing what she did, which is amazing. But she came and was just chatting, and she said, um, let me see where this one is. I got out of sequence. I want to get what she said accurately. Yes. First of all, as I said, she'd always looked been kind of depressive. And as she was sitting here talking, we're sitting in the little kuti, her face was just radiant. It was so bright. And she was saying that last year, when she came with the idea for the school, the idea had been growing so strongly in her mind. She said, I just want to help these children. And it got so strong, she said, that I can't hardly eat. I couldn't hardly sleep. It was just such, I had to do something to help these children. And now, she said, it's built, and it's so much work. You know, it's so hard, because they have to, it's all on Donna. So to hire teachers, regular teachers, government-approved teachers, means every month they have to, to somehow, Donna has to come in from whatever people happen to come by and visit, uh, to pay the teacher's salaries, to pay for the desks, to, you know, to have a well that works and have toilets that work, all kinds of stuff. She said, it's so much work, and they're all cramped together. And she said, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. It's hard. All the energy is for the children and the school. And so she said, my mind is calm and happy, whereas before it had been filled with worry. And she said, all the hard work, her mind is so happy, and she would be so happy if she can just do this for the rest of her life. And we could see, sure, it comes and goes, but the transformation through this like really commitment to generosity of her time and her energy, this really of the stretching, you know, to help others, has brought a much stronger peace and happiness and contentment to her mind. And that's then available, you know, to see more clearly. It's onward leading. It doesn't just end with the generosity. I'll read this from, this is from Ajahn Pasano. But he's basically, this is his commentary on a sutta. He says, just nature, it's lawful that Generosity, the foundational quality on the path of awakening, that it lawfully opens into deeper qualities of awakening. So then this is Ajahn Pasno. There's a naturalness to this gradual training. The cultivation of these foundational qualities leads naturally to, to deeper qualities. For example, common ways of teaching emphasizes dana, sila, bhavana, generosity, virtuous conduct, mental cultivation. When one, and this is really from a sutta, when one is generous and delights in giving, 
the heart is satisfied and joyous. This supports the development of virtue, because as a heart that is satisfied and contented easily inclines to restraint and composure. Right? With this composure, together with the lack of remorse that virtue affords, the heart is easily settled and focused. So then meditation progresses more smoothly because the mind naturally brightens, making it suitable for seeing things as they truly are. Get a sense of that? And really just part of the reason I I keep telling different stories, even if just one of them hits you, you get a sense of how the mind or heart naturally brightens. And that brightness leads to a pliancy, a suppleness, an openness. We're not clouded by kalesa, and there is more potential to see things as they truly are. Let me give you a, a different story to see. This one gets. This is not from Burma, but I heard this. I, don't know, I saw it on YouTube, or somebody um, showed it to me on YouTube. Here it is. It was a little clip from one of these um, talent shows, like well, like American Idol kind of thing. I never watched them, so I, it wasn't American Idol. It was some other one, some British one, with that guy. You guys probably know one of the judges, that mean guy. <laughs> What's his name? Simon something or the other. He seems like really not a very nice guy, but he's always the judge. So that's all I remember. And the young man who was singing was like a teenager, 17, 18, of Iraqi descent, but he'd been adopted by an Australian woman. And he'd been, he and his brother had both been adopted by an Australian woman. And they had both been really severely wounded, I think by bombs or something, during part of the war in Iraq when they were really young children. I mean, wounded to where their limbs were gone. I can't remember the specifics, but like he certainly was missing arms and legs. Both of them were. And this Australian woman had gone to Iraq and fallen in love with them both and adopted them both and brought them back to Australia. So that's the backstory. But first, you didn't really know that. They just introduced him and he comes on with, you know, just so bright missing arms and legs, and starts singing. And he was really good. But of course, everyone's heart was open. He was really good. So he's singing. But then at the end, the thing he turns, his mother was there and his brother was there. And this is what was really so moving. So he turned to them just with so much love and appreciation to his mother, just for her love and generosity. And then you see the brother there. And then she's saying, like, this isn't generosity, you know. It's just love. But it was like a little... It was like a love fest, just so much purity. And I tried to imagine what a generous heart that woman would have to adopt two kids so wounded, you know, who could never really, and how beautiful they all were. Even that that mean guy, Simon, had tears in his eyes. (laughs) And the thing that I want to bring out, it's a beautiful story, but just seeing that generosity and love, the kind of generosity that you don't think, oh, I'm so generous, it's just a natural sharing. Why does it touch us? Because it opens that same potential. It opens in our own hearts and minds that brightness, 
that movement beyond the sense of me. I might think, oh, I couldn't do that. Oh, she's so great. Well, that isn't really very touching, is it? But when I don't, you don't go there, you just, wow, look at that. You're not thinking, I should be like that or anything like that. Just, that's so amazing. That expression of generosity and love is so beautiful. We can appreciate it because it's natural to us too. And so opening to see it acted out through other people is really a great way in for us. It begins to open us to a deeper practice and deeper understanding. In the Buddha's stories, in the scriptures, there's one man who was uh, the most, he's known as the most generous, he was a huge supporter of the Buddha, Anatta Pindaka. He, when he first met the Buddha, he was so filled with faith that he just you know, he basically fell in love with the Buddha. And he's one of those people that when the Buddha first met him, he gave him, uh, I just want to read you this line because this is one of these, the way they introduce this graduated teaching. So he, the Buddha met Anattapindaka, and who had not ever met the Buddha before or heard the Dhamma. And step by step, he saw he needed a step by step gradual discourse. So he spoke to him of generosity, of virtue, of the heavenly realms, of the perils and vanity and the nature of sensual pleasures, of the joy and benefits of renunciation. And when he saw that Anattapindaka was ready in heart and mind, the mind and heart was pliable, unobstructed, uplifted, and serene, then he explained to him the teaching that is unique to the enlightened ones, the Four Noble Truths. So specifically, when I'm talking about generosity tonight, not only in how we do it, but noticing the effect it has in our hearts and mind, any wholesome state does, that it brings, um, it makes the mind uplifted, serene, pliable. In that state, it's more able to recognize things as they really are. And so I'll read another sutta towards the end of the talk, but there's times here in practice when practice is going fine, great. There's other times when whatever's coming up is so difficult and so overwhelming. Maybe you're really getting overwhelmed by fear or physical pain or self-judgment, and not just that it's there, but you're just lost in it or fatigue and you think, I just can't do this anymore. Okay, everyone thinks that. You more than think it. You really think, it's really true, I can't do this anymore. (laughs) And if the only option, and I know I'm always saying, I'm going to keep on saying, have total confidence in mindfulness. I'm not backing off of that. (laughs) Have total confidence in awareness. That's always the first way to go. Sometimes you're like, what mindfulness? (laughs) What awareness? What confidence? You say mindfulness doesn't care what's happening, but I care. And I can't look at this thing one more second. That's when you can remember that there's other aspects of purifying our heart and mind. Generosity is one. And it doesn't mean you have to run out and do something generous, you know. You can, and this I'll say at the end, we can can actually just bring to mind 
acts of generosity of our own in the past, and it can even be thoughts, or of others. Like even this little story I was just saying, contemplate, recognize gratitude, tune into that quality of openness of heart and mind, and notice it changes the channel, you know? It can really bring some uplifting to your heart and mind. That's not cheating. It's not cheating. It's really shifting out of feeding the unwholesome by just spinning in negativity and opening into what is uh, an aspect of moving beyond greed, hatred, and confusion on the path. I want to give you another example of how this onward leading happens naturally, too. This was another, for us, this was another, like, uh, PT moment. One of the monks, one of the monks at the place we're staying, who wants to help people, he kind of goes around and talks to people, and he would point out, oh, this young guy, he's really smart. He could go to school, but he doesn't have any money. Or he'd go and say, this person, their house is really falling down, and they're really virtuous. Maybe you could help them. And it's so sweet to me to see this. So he told us about two monks he had met just over on the other side in this, this, in this dusty little compound. He said there were two guys that became monks in their mid-30s. They'd only been monks a few years. And they didn't really know what to do with themselves, he said. They were just living in this compound as monks, and they weren't really studying, and they weren't really meditating, and they weren't really doing much of anything, <laughs> just, just kind of hanging out there. And... Uh, he said, he suggested them, well, why don't you, like, do something useful with your life? <laughs> do something, <laughs> I mean, he said it in a nice way, I think, but let's see again to see if I can find the exact. But he said, he went to them and said, you know, you're just sitting around and you're educated. One had been a businessman and the other had been a captain in the army. So they were both somewhat educated. He said, there's all these poor kids that can't afford school and you could, like, you could help them with tuition. The way it works in Burma, even if you go to a government school, and even in the young grades, you somehow don't learn enough to pass the tests. And most kids have to have after-school tuition, which they need to pay the teachers for. And that's also the only way the teachers can survive, since they don't get paid enough in the schools. It's this whole system. So there's lots of kids that maybe they scrape by in the school, but they can't afford tuition. So these guys decided to do that. So Upanyaloka, the, the monk, told us, and we went over to visit and see. And it was such a trip. And it also cut through our uh, views, too. Because we get into views of who, good monks and not-so-good monks and sincere monks and you know, just hanging out, doing nothing much monks and nuns. So we went over, and these two guys were really in this, just this poor little compound with a couple of shacks, and they didn't look like good monks. You know? They were just kind of there, and they'd been... They chewed betel nut, which is not a, it's not a good look, really, <laughs> for anybody. It has become your habit. You know how it looks, you know, it dyes your mouth and red and your teeth start to rot, and, but it's addictive. So when you see a monk who's like chewing betel nut, right away you kind of, uh, <laughs> which is superficial, right? You don't know. So... But they had like a hundred little kids there 
in the afternoon that they were teaching. And then we had a conversation, what do you need? And they needed a well. They didn't have any water. You know, they were schlepping it in in buckets for all these little kids and for how they lived. Very poor. And uh, so then we were talking to, one of them had only been three years a monk, and then the other one seven years. So the businessman, he was the younger one. He was the more, um, he spoke more. He had been a businessman working with alcohol, cigarettes, and beer, and he did a meditation retreat with Pauk Sayadaw and wanted to ordain, and his parents wouldn't let him, and he had to work to let him, and they finally did, maybe in his mid-30s. So he was telling us, just talking away, and we're kind of, ah, and then we, we started really listening. And he said, you know, first he told us this parable. He said that a frog is sitting on a lotus flower, but he's so close he just doesn't even notice the lovely fragrance of the flower. But then bees come from far away, and they come and they really enjoy the scent and the nectar of the flower. So he's saying this to us. He says, so you're foreigners. You're like the bees that come from far away. You know, he said, I, a Burmese person, I live here in a country where the sasana, where the dhamma is flowering. But for the first 33 years of my life, I didn't even enjoy the fragrance. Whereas you foreigners come from far away and enjoy it. He said, but now... He said, now, I've discovered, I feel like I have a new life. He feels like like I'm reborn from helping people. He said, now, to be able to help these kids, I feel like I'm completely reborn, like I have a new life. So I feel like I wasted the first 33 years of my life. And now all I want to do the rest of my life is if these kids grow up, we'll move to somewhere else and then start another tuition and help those kids. And it was just so beautiful. And he was also, that was deepening him into his love of the Dhamma, into his wanting to practice more. And it's just like a, like a whole circle, you know. And it was really good for us, because we were so touched. And it's like, okay, we thought they weren't good monks. Delete that one, you know. So what if they chew betel nut, you know. So what if they were sitting there not knowing what to do? As soon as they got the idea to help, they were like transformed beings, it was so beautiful. And we went and watched them with the kids, you know, and they were just so tender, so kind, with these hundred kids running around. And we talked to families in the neighborhood whose kids were going there. And you can just see it all spreading out. But that's just an example of how the generosity, when it's really done wholeheartedly, in whatever way, is a natural unfolding into deepening and deepening our understanding, our freedom of heart and mind. So the point the Buddha makes very strongly in the suttas with the Natapindaka is that the heart of generosity is, guess what, just like everything we do, is in the intention, the motivation in our own mind and heart. It's not about who gives more, who gives less, or even what. It's not about giving things. It could just be a thought of generosity. There's um, a saying in the sutta, the sutta, even if a person throws the rinsings of a bowl or a cup into a village pond, thinking, may whatever animals live here feed on this, that would be an act of generosity. Isn't it just, can you see how it just shifts our mind and heart from just throwing the slop away to thinking, may this be of benefit to beings? That's an act of generosity. So it's this intention at the heart that really makes the difference. And there's a story from um, the Buddha with Anattapindaka 
that illustrates this that I really like a lot. So Anattapindika, as I said, he became the Buddha's most wealthy supporter. And he bought the uh, Jeta Grove, where if you read the suttas, like more suttas than anywhere else take place in that grove. The Buddha spent a lot of range retreats there. So after he established that monastery, Anattapindika would keep supporting the Sangha. He would invite, uh, when they were in the area where he lived, he would invite the Buddha and all the monks and nuns to his house for the noon meal, like up to 500. Andy Olinsky says 500, when you read in the suttas, basically means a lot. It doesn't specifically mean 500. But so 500 monks would come daily, and he would give them alms, and he'd give them food, and, and... his home was filled with robes and the ambiance of saintliness. Okay, that's not in the sutta, that's from a writer. Then the king of the area, King uh, Pasanadi, who was also a supporter of the Buddha, he heard of Anattapindaka's generosity and he wanted to imitate him. Basically, he was jealous of him, right? Well, if he gets 500 monks, but I can do that too. I'm the king after all. So he, uh, he started supplying alms for 500 monks daily. But one day, when he was on his way to talk to the monks, to the Buddha, he learned from his servants that the monks, after he offered them their meal, they were taking the food away with them into the city, giving the food to their supporters in the city, and then the supporters would offer the food back to them. And he said, <laughs> the king was mystified. He said, I'm giving them very tasty food. You know, it's much better than Anathapindika's. What's that about? And the Buddha explained to the king that in the palace, he just had his servants, his courtiers, distributing the food without any inner feeling, just following orders as if they were cleaning out a barn. You know? Blah, 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 blah. Here's your food. He said they lacked faith. They had no love for the monks. It wasn't an act of generosity. So when anything was given in that spirit, no one could feel comfortable accepting it, even when the meal was made of the most delicious food. So, in contrast, the faithful householders of the city, like Anathapindika and Wisaka, a woman who was also known for her generosity, they welcomed the monks and regarded them as spiritual friends, appreciated that they lived for the welfare and benefit of beings. A humble meal provided by a friend would be worth much more than the most sumptuous meal offered by someone who did not give in the right spirit. So the purification the joy of the generosity, the onward leadingness to free our our hearts from clinging, from holding, from possessiveness. It's really all in the motivation. And so it's not that who gives more, but just to keep tuning in, tuning into your motivation. Oh, good, okay. So I can quickly say this kind of seven, seven... Little seven practice of purifying motivation. Don't make a big deal about this. Don't even try and remember. But just if any of it goes in. I got this from a talk um, from Upandita one time. Just practicing in the act of giving. And the first is you, you really tune into your volition, to your motivation. You know, when the thought comes up in the mind, I want to give this, or I should give this, or whatever. Don't think, should, I shouldn't. Tune into the motivation and really purify it before giving. There's a Tibetan, I heard a Tibetan teacher say, you know, if you, if you actually can't imagine giving a thing or your time or whatever, just imagine it in the thought. That's enough to start with. Just imagine being generous in your thoughts. 
Just imagine spending time with your sick friend. Or a Tibetan teacher said, if you can't give something, just take a rock and give it from one hand to the other. And just practice letting go like that. But just play with it. Purify the motivation. And as you're doing that, obviously, as you're doing that, you see, and if you can't, you abandon the clinging to the thing that you give. Whatever it is. Your time. An object of clothing. A meal. Whatever it is. But just in that moment, really letting go of clinging to it. The third, which isn't workable here, but like in Burma, where I said it's very formal when you give to monks or nuns, it's a very formal thing. So it's like done face-to-face, it's not done casually. Oh, here's this, okay, thanks, see you later. You know. I remember a friend told me once, he mentioned I had, had something I didn't really want, and he kind of wanted it, so yeah, sure, take it. It was like that. And he said years later, he said, you know, that thing you gave me is some kind of pillow, I use it all the time. Your casual generosity turned out to be so useful. And he didn't mean that in a critical way, but it really went in, because that's what it was, completely casual. I didn't give it any attention. No, oh, yes, sure, take it. And it doesn't, it's not like you're building yourself up by giving it attention, but it's honoring the motivation and the connectedness of generosity itself just to do it with yourself being present and the person being present. So when we go to nunneries and we offer, even if it's just money, it's always done, you, call, you get a tray, any kind of tray. There's always a tray lying around somewhere. You pile the money on the tray, and then, or if you were giving cups or food or whatever, and then um, some of the people offering hold the tray, someone representing the nuns receiving it hold the tray, and they chant a whole really lovely metta chant, different lengths. Sometimes it's short, sometimes it'll go on for 10 minutes. And if it's a big nunnery, even the little girl nuns like four years old, they know it, and they stand there and just completely do this chant. It's so beautiful. I mean, the chant's not always so melodic, okay? But it's so touching, you know? And you can go through whatever you go through, but it's like a really honoring of that whole movement, you know? It is so different from, oh, here, let me put this check to amnesty in the mail. But even writing a check in the mail, do it, really, with your mind fully present on what you're doing. Abandon the clinging, clarify your motivation, and do it fully present. Then after we're giving, you know, again, purify the motivation. Have you ever had that, oh, why did I do that? Oh, that was too big of a check. Oh, no, I gave that away, but I really, I think I might wear that. In two years, <laughs> I want it back. Have you ever done that? Should I give this? I haven't worn it for 10 years, but I don't know. Okay, I'll give it. No, no, maybe no one took it. I'll go get it back. <laughs> so that's not so great, you know. Purify them. Notice again. Notice again. And the other is really to be aware of clear comprehension of the broader context. You know, so sometimes we don't know. But so the, the classic example of if there's someone who's an alcoholic and they want a drink, is it generosity to give them a drink? You know, maybe not. So really tuning in. We don't know all the situation, but it's really to tune into the broader context as well as we can. Um, so it's, it's not that sense of I should be generous and whatever anyone asks, I should give. Or I'm not. All these shoulds that we bring in. Notice how that shuts down the mind and the heart. That's not at all the open space of generosity, either giving or receiving. 
So as much as you can, be aware of the broader context, you know, clarify your motivation, broader context. And then I've added what I've said before, to receive in as connected and open-hearted a way. And if in the receiving a big sense of self comes up, just tune into that with kindness. But don't land on that. Don't let that get in the way of letting the circle of giving and receiving be completed. And so, as a practice here in quietness, and this comes from the Buddha, to use thoughts and recollections of generosity, your own generosity and others, to brighten and purify your own mind and heart in difficult times or just in sleepy times or just because it's a lovely thing to do. So an example. In past years, I was spending a lot of time um, with my aging parents when they were alive. And I really noticed, it's, as you, many of you know, it's very demanding, lots of choices. And whatever one does never feels like enough because you can't really make the situation the way you wish it were, like how it was 20 years ago, duh. So um, I would notice how easy it was for the mind to focus on, ah, oh, I didn't stay long enough, I didn't do this, I forgot to do that, I got impatient about this, it's not enough, I have to leave them alone, it's so... But that's not helpful. If you really can actually turn around and focus on all the many moments of pure-hearted generosity that are involved in that. So that's with parents, with your children, with your friends. There's stuff we don't do that we could do. Yes, sure. I'm not saying go into denial, but it's so easy for us not to really appreciate the generous acts and thoughts and deeds and the goodness the non-harming behavior. And to actually bring that into heart and mind is not an ego trip. Ego trip would be, I'm so great. You'll notice the mind doesn't get brighter. It doesn't get more supple. It's not onward leading. It just feels the limitations of self coming in. But when you actually use it as a practice, and this is from the Buddha, it's extremely helpful. So this is from a sutta. And he's talking about actually six different recollections. One is sila, one is generosity, um, one is the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. And he talks about the devas and stuff. So I'm just, it's all the same, but I'll read the generosity one. There is the case where you recollect your own generosity like this. It is a gain, a great gain for me, that among people overcome with a stain of possessiveness, I live at home my awareness cleansed of the stain of possessiveness. Freely generous, open-handed, delighting in being generous, responsive to requests, delighting in the distribution of alms. At any time when a disciple of the noble ones is recollecting generosity, her mind is not overcome with greed. Her mind is not overcome with aversion, is not overcome with delusion. Did you hear that? At any time one is truly contemplating, recollecting generosity, your mind is not overcome with greed, with aversion, with delusion. Her mind, her heart heads straight, based on generosity. And when the mind, the heart is headed straight, the disciple of the noble ones has a sense of the meaning 
a sense of the Dhamma, experiences joy connected with the Dhamma. In one who is joyful, rapture arises. In one who is rapturous, the body grows calm. In one whose body is calmed, experiences ease. In one at ease, the mind becomes concentrated. So, you should develop this recollection of generosity while you are walking, while you are standing, while you are sitting, while you are lying down, while you are busy at work, while you are resting in your home, crowded with children. So if we can recollect it when we're resting in our home, crowded with children, maybe we can recollect our generosity now, just for just 30 seconds. Recollect your generosity. And thank you for listening.